From the National Project on Race and Capitalism, welcome to Season 3 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. My name is Adam Gitacho and I'm Assistant Professor of Political Science at University of Chicago. And it's a real pleasure to moderate and facilitate this conversation on Tommy Shelby's excellent book, Dark Ghettos, Injustice, Dissent, and Reform. So I'll introduce our two conversation partners. I'll ask a few questions to get us started. So it's a real pleasure to be in conversation with Tommy Shelby, who's the Caldwell Tickcomb Professor of African and African-American Studies and of Philosophy at Harvard University. His research and teaching interests include social and political philosophy, Africana philosophy, philosophy of law, critical philosophy of race, hist history of black political thought, and philosophy of social science. He is the author of We Who Are Dark, The Ph uh, Philosophical Foundations of Black Solidarity, and co-editor of Hip Hop and Philosophy, Rhyme to Reason, as well as the very recent and excellent collection with Brandon Terry, To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King. So our conversation today takes up Tommy's uh, newest book, or I guess not newest, now it's been two years, but Dark Ghettos, Injustice, Dissent, and Reform, published by Harvard and winner of the 2016 Book Award from the North American Academy for Social Philosophy. So in conversation is my colleague, Michael Dawson. Michael Dawson is the John D. MacArthur Professor of Political Science in the College at the University of Chicago. His research interests have included the development of quantitative models of African-American political behavior, identity, and public opinion, the political effects of urban poverty, and African-American political ideology. More recently, he has combined his quantitative work with work in political theory and organized a, a national project on race and capitalism, of which this program and podcast is a part. His first books, Behind the Mule, Race and Class in African-American Politics, and Black Visions, The Roots of Contemporary African-American Political Ideologies, set a new agenda for the study of Black politics. For its intervention in this regard, Black Visions won the Ralph Bunch Award from the American Political Science Association. More recently, he's written Not in Our Lifetime, The Future of Black Politics, and Blacks in and Out of the Left, Past, Present, and Future. Michael's also the winner last year of the Haynes Walton Jr. Career Award from the American Political Science Association. So in, in preparation for this program, I thought a lot about the ways in which both of you have kind of a similar trajectory in your work from very different perspectives. So in Michael's early work on the concept of linked fates, and in Tommy Shelby's philosophical account of political solidarity, which is where I encountered both of your work initially, I learned from you how to think about black identity, black politics, and black solidarity. And so these concerns, of course, have remained central to both of you, but you've both also began thinking more systematically about the intersections of race and political economy in this context, thinking specifically about the dark ghetto. To start the conversation, I wondered if you can both narrate for us your experience of this trajectory. How did you arrive at your more recent focuses on racial capitalism or race and class broadly construed? So hard question. So some philosopher by training, I came to political philosophy primarily through the work of Marx. I think probably for you know, through graduate school, 
probably thought of myself as a fairly orthodox Marxist in some ways. And then sort of, I got really interested in the history of black political thought and in questions about the intersection of race and class. And I found myself rejecting certain key theses and kind of orthodox Marxist thought, though still attracted to many of them. And sort of saw myself as trying to, I can still see myself as in many ways trying to draw from a range of traditions that include include Marxism, but, you know, broader black radical thought, which includes black feminist thought and also liberal egalitarian thought as well. So much of what I do kind of draws from these traditions. So the, the Black Solidarity Project came out of worrying about class differentiation amongst black people and, and the fear that that basically would undermine any productive form of black political solidarity in the post-civil rights era. So that was my attempt to kind of think through that set of issues. And Dark Ghetto sort of continues that in a way, but it's just more explicitly focused not on the relationship between the black professional managerial elite and, and the ghetto poor, but focusing directly on the, on the, the condition of the, of the black urban poor and thinking through the range of injustices that define their plight. So most of what I've done is been in and around that set of, that set of issues. And because I teach in the Department of African and African American Studies at Harvard, and I've been doing this in my 19th year, I spent a lot of time trying to be in conversation with people in other fields, whether in, in political science or in sociology or history, even increasingly literature, and drawing on the work of colleagues who are working in and around these issues and seeing you know, what I can learn from them. My path into this work, or into this conversation, is somewhat different. I was an active participant in what we might call the Black New Left in the 1970s. And that failed spectacularly for reasons I talk about in Black Sin and Now the Left. And so when I went back to school, I had a couple questions. Why did the movement fail? How was the U.S. was changing quite rapidly? I was working in Silicon Valley full time. What did technological change mean for Black communities? What did it mean for the same type of questions Tommy was interested in? rising, very affluent, upper-middle-class and black bourgeoisie with, with the consequences for black politics. Um, I sort of landed in political science by mistake. I was an African-American studies undergraduate. I was told I would have to learn two or three foreign languages if I went to history, and that the stuff I wanted to study was too recent. And I was told that if I did mathematics at Harvard, that would count as a language. And I said, oh, okay. So that was a really bad reason to become a political scientist. <laughs> but here we are. So I was interested both in terms of the actual political opinion of, of African-Americans, and particularly in terms of how African-Americans saw their political future with respect to the United States, and I was interested in political economy more generally. I was told both in graduate school, you can only do political economy if you do rational choice theory and game theory, and I was told when I was an assistant professor at the University of Michigan that only Marxists do political economy, and I sort of raised an eyebrow, asking silently, and then I was told, and there are none of those people here, there never will be. And I kept my mouth shut, and I started doing public opinion research. Eventually, I moved to the University of Chicago and was able to expand what I was interested in because I also wanted to start responding to several critiques, both by some orthodox Marxists in and out of the academy, as well as by various social theorists such as Todd Gitlin, that it was the women's movement, the black movement, the Chicano movement that destroyed the left. That seemed, at least at the empirical and historical question, spectacularly wrong. 
but I also wanted to theoretically understand better how those movements articulated with each other, what were the sources of domination, how do we understand political economy in the context of both very, very strong patriarchal and white supremacist system, and that led to the type of work I've been doing over the last 10 years with Megan Francis at the University of Washington and with in cooperation with the Social Science Research Council and colleagues at a number of universities in New York, in California, and throughout the country, decided to start systematically across disciplines investigating the questions of race and capitalism. And when the work with Megan and Emily Katchenstein and how race, capitalism, and patriarchy are, are articulated with each other, and that's how I end up here. Turning now to the book, in the opening pages, Tommy, you make the case that before we think about what political and normative approaches to take to the problem of the ghetto, we have to reconceptualize the terms by which we even understand the space. And so here you argue against what you describe as a medical model and instead lay out a systematic systemic injustice framework. So I wonder if you could lay out these two approaches for us. How does the medical model or how has it shaped normative discussions about the ghetto? And what does your framework of systemic injustice bring to view from your perspective? So a lot of this, the work on this topic came through reading lots of social scientists, especially sociologists who've been working on these questions for a very long time. And Reading, you know, numerous books and essays, you know, I, as a philosopher, I'm prone to generalization abstraction, so I'm often looking for patterns and what people were doing. And one of the patterns that it seemed to me was a, a way of conceptualizing the problem as largely a matter of the, the black urban poor's inability to be fully integrated into the social system or to take advantage of opportunities that are, that are there and attempts to try to find interventions that might help them do so. And this seemed to me to have a number of problems, some obvious like the ways in which by conceptualizing it in, a, in what I'm calling a medical model and a kind of interventionist model, you have is a tendency to kind of hold a lot of the background social structure as, as given and not to raise questions about that. And so I, you know, philosophers like to ask questions about that. And it was sort of a natural way for me to begin in engaging with that work was to think about, well, what would happen if you kind of move back a bit and think about the social scheme as a whole, or rather than just focusing on how to make little interventions here and there to help people kind of integrate into an already existing system. Also worried about, you know, where that background system is marked by or rather gross, stark injustices, that that might affect the kinds of interventions that are legitimate to make, that places a constraint on the kind of ways you can intervene in the lives of the oppressed. And I felt like there were ways that sometimes that discussion was not being highlighted or taken seriously. Some of that is falling right out of the fact that people are thinking of people as kind of dysfunctional or pathological anyway, and so not wanting to take seriously the ways in which they might be responding to unjust circumstances in a kind of thoughtful, morally motivated way, which is a third problem I, I have with it, the kind of a, the, the sense that not really seeing who are deeply disadvantaged as capable of having a, a thoughtful, rational, morally motivated response to the forms of injustice justice that circumscribe their lives. And of course, this is something in African-American studies that has been a focus, you know, even focusing on the history of slavery, this from, you know, down to the present of, of thinking about even the most oppressed people find ways of fighting back. And they do that sometimes even when they don't have a 
a sense that things are going to get better anytime soon, if at all. And that sometimes they will still put up various forms of resistance. And so I felt like those questions, what you know, philosophers might call questions of political morality, what I sometimes call questions of political ethics, were kind of dropped out of a lot of the discussion. And I wanted to bring them to the fore and see what I could learn by thinking about it. And I don't talk of systemic injustice, of course, is not original with me, but as a, as a way of framing the question where you focus on the, you know, what John Rawls would call the basic structure or the, the broader background institutions in society, what would happen if you highlight those and ask the hard questions that philosophers have always asked about justice, you know, since Plato? One of the, I think, striking ways in which the book is structured and is that it kind of, so especially, for instance, the chapter on integration takes this kind of very, what has now become almost like a assumed like everyone believes this is the way to solve a kind of problem of kind of concentrated poverty and racial segregation is to engage in a kind of projects of integration. And there your interlocutor is Elizabeth Anderson. And what I found so such a significant intervention in that project is both your attention to the the ways in which the, the kind of empirical bases of that kind of claim might be misguided and the kind of normative implications that fall out of that. So for one, this, the ways in which that kind of focus on integration continues to associate whiteness with social mobility and prox- proximity to whiteness as the way one might have to, one would gain so- certain kinds of social capital. And so I'm interested in how you, and this is kind of for both of you to reflect on, I mean, Tommy coming from at this as a philosopher, Michael having at least started as an empirical social scientist, still committed to empirical social science, how you think about like what the role and place of you know, those two ways of modes of analysis and critique are, the kind of how do you draw on an empirical, the empirical social science literature to think about you know, fr- framing and formulating your, your kind of philosophical inquiries? And then, Michael, how might you think about the relationship from your it's a great question. One of the ambitions of the book is to try to show that what looks like fundamentally a, an empirical disagreement is actually a disagreement in political morality. So that's a thing that, I, that runs through the book, is to, in many ways, take a set of, often, you know, as Foster would say, would, would say, you know, arguing, kind of arguendo. So assume a certain set of facts, what follows from that, normatively speaking, and often it's not what people think. Or they're, they're hiding and obscuring the principles that they're relying on, and when you make them explicit, they can't really be defended. So much of the book is, is structured that way. So, so part of what I want to do in thinking about integration was to say, yes, as you mentioned, that there's questions about whether it will produce all the benefits that some people think it will produce, but, but I want to go a step further and say, even if it did, there might be questions about whether it's a defensible way of dealing with racial inequality in, in poor black neighborhoods. So I do that in lots of different ways. I mean, one, one way is to, to just raise some questions about the, the way people think about social capital, where I think once you begin to start thinking about human relationships as another 
economic asset or another asset to advance yourself, I, that, that, that already begins to distort things morally. Because while everybody can agree that the people who we have a sense of community, solidarity, friendship with will often do us favors, sometimes big ones. I mean, I would argue that, uh, I think a lot of other people would argue that to see the relationship as principally a lever for that advancement is, is morally problematic. So, so I wanted to kind of begin to put pressure on that as a thought that like, well, a, a policy that's rooted in the idea that the black poor should work their way into a social networks of the advantage, particularly the white advantage, like that as an avenue to their economic advancement, a way in which that could be challenged by alternative conceptions of community and what its value is. So again, that's, not, that's a different kind of way of arguing. It's not arguing that if they were, could manage to work their, their way into these networks that they wouldn't do better, they probably would. But that doesn't settle the moral question. So those are the kinds of strategies that I was trying to take up, but also to think about the ways in which, even in the context of injustice, even for those who are worried about economic inequality, as we all should be, we shouldn't lose sight of, of the value of liberty. And people have a stake in, a basic interest in controlling how their, life goes, how their lives go and being able to make decisions about the forms of affiliation they want to cultivate, where they want to live, <laughs> what kinds of community they want to build. And to emphasize economic inequality to such an extent that you completely ignore the value of their liberty to control their lives is also a, a kind of moral. So those are just a couple of examples of the way in which I try to put pressure on uh, an integration. In some ways, the way we think about contesting some of the norms within our disciplines are quite similar. So I was trained as both an engineer and to some degree in economics as well. So our version is as if. Let's, let's build a model as if A, B, C, and D were true, and then the model can be quite elegant, produce quite counterintuitive results, and the veracity of the model is often judged by the elegance of the mathematics. And what I do both pedagogically, but also as part of my research, is let's not assume as if. Let's look at the normative assumptions and the empirical assumptions, the historical assumptions that go into the actual formulation of the model before we actually start cranking out results. But another way I come to the relationship between normative theory and my empirical research is there's a lot of political claims that are made. I talked a little bit earlier about one about why did the left fail in the 1970s. But another one is that we hear quite often, we've heard it for over 100 years, is policy X, behavior B will divide the working class. Frederick Douglass's son was told in the late 19th, early 20th century that the uh, left cannot fight against lynching because it would divide the working class. There's a political scientist today at the University of Pennsylvania who, for example, has recently written that anti-racist work undermines class solidarity by its very nature. So I wanted to look at what is actually the content and the reasons behind what is dividing, quote unquote, the working class. So to use one example of my work is I've done a lot of public opinion work on reparations. And 
the divide between blacks and whites on support for reparations couldn't be any more stark. 4% of white Americans support reparations. 80% of black Americans support reparations. It doesn't matter how you ask the questions. You ask about the survivors, reparations for survivors of Tulsa and, and Rosewood, which occurred in the early 20th century. We're talking about a handful of people. Support among white Americans for reparations does not change. So. One of, the, one of my responses is the working class Americans are already divided by race. The more interesting question is, what the, is why is that the case? And what might be, we do to combat that? And part of, for example, the reason that claim I make is that African Americans using, from the standpoint of Habermas, we do not share the same common sense. We see the world fundamentally differently. So in a study that we did in the 1990s, a public opinion study, majority of white Americans believe two set of facts. Blacks had less, lower levels of unemployment, higher levels of health, lower levels of infant mortality, higher levels of education, and higher degrees of wealth. This was a study done by uh, Tommy's co uh, colleague, Jennifer Hochschild, his colleague, Larry Bovo, me, and a colleague of ours now at the University of Virginia, Lynn Sanders. So that's the world that the majority of white Americans saw. The second set of facts that were also produced in the same majority of white Americans believe that blacks were less intelligent on average than white Americans, blacks were more prone to crime, and blacks were more prone to welfare. So part of what we're, tr we're trying to understand is why do these divisions exist? If we see fundamentally different worlds, that's not a, a question of what political program we pursue dividing people. We have to start much more basically about trying to understand how to change people's view of what the reality they see so they can at least have a common language to discuss their disagreements. So. That leads to me to a different set of normative understandings of what is a good political program would exist, you know, with, with, what form it would take. So that's sort of the way I go back and forth between my empirical work on particularly public opinion, but also political economy on one hand, and some of the normative theorizing I do as well. So the kind of approach Tommy takes in the book in terms of from what normative standard or from what vantage point do we kind of think about the problem of the ghetto is a kind of, you call it a black radical egalitarianism or a black radical liberalism. And I wanted to ask you about how these analytical and political commitments of a black radical egalitarianism compare to a more a, a black Marxist approach. And another way to ask this might be, do we need a more explicit critique of capitalism or racial capitalism specifically? Or do we need to center that as part of the, both the critical and normative analysis we take? So the black radical egalitarian, I take that from Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so blame him. And I mean, Charles Mills has been using the term black radical liberalism. I basically use them interchangeably as, like, uh, as one way of framing things, not partly as a way of, of highlighting something I was, uh, my initial remarks I was making about how and I've been, I mean, I'm very much, I guess it's probably fair to say I'm a kind of late Du Boisian in, in many ways. And so I'm a person who is drawing on, you know, yes, liberal egalitarian idea, ideas, but also drawing on Marxism and also sort of sees, even though I probably it wouldn't be fair to describe me as, as a black nationalist, I'm, I have a great sympathy with, I think there are ins, many insights there to draw on. So, so when I speak of it that way, that's kind of what I have in mind. It's kind of a, is a kind of, kind of neo-Du Boisian kind of way of thinking about things that draws on these 
on, on these three traditions. When people talk about black Marxism, they mean different things. So one of the things I think in the famous Robinson book is he's very concerned with identifying a kind of independent tradition of thought that goes way back and so on. I tend to, and then when he, the figures he focuses on, people like, like the boys or, or Richard Wright or Taylor James, I don't know James as well as I know Wright and, and the boys. I probably read them very differently than he does. So I don't see them as in, I see them as people who have thought of themselves as contributing to the development of Marx theory rather than as people who see themselves as kind of in, uh, in opposition to it in a way or drawing some independent thing, but like they're in the tradition. Like it's a, it's a living thing, right? It's kind of like the way Marx would have thought of it. I mean, you know, scientific socialism, right? It, 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 it's not as a set of dogmas. It's a, it, it, it develops as you learn new things. And among the things you learn is about the, the significance of the slave trade and colonialism and racial domination to the making of the modern world. And if you don't pay attention to that, you're not going to understand very much about our world. So that's the tradition that I think of myself as in. The liberal egalitarian, it does shift things in, in one way. They might, might separate me somewhat from Michael Pierce, but you would think it's true. So when I say I don't describe myself as a Marxist anymore, it's partly because Marx sort of, as I read him, is kind of starting with kind of grand social theory. Sort of starts with a theory of history and a theory of capitalism. And understanding the development of capitalism within the theory of historical materialism, about the way in which it emerges at a given, at a given time because of technological advance and productive power that's at our disposal, what happens when you have a system like that over time, how it makes possible human emancipation. But it's all like mostly a, a grand social theory empirically based. It's very light on the normative. In fact, I would say evasive. About, about a number of, of important normative questions. I think probably he thought, because I think he probably thought the normative questions were really easy. I don't think they are. So, so one, so I tend, so part of the reason why I, I, I'm attracted to certain dimensions of liberal egalitarian thought, and, and, you know, in and, and Rawls and, and Ronald Dworkin and many other people who kind of work on tradition is they, they think, they turn it around. They say, let's start with the question of what justice requires. And then we can ask about what forms of social organization satisfy those principles? Well, that's the way I proceed now. I, did, I used to proceed the other way around taking the normative questions as relatively obvious and just doing the social theory bit. And it's just a matter of if you clear away the, the, the mystification of ideology, people will just see, of course, this is what you do, that kind of thing, and, and right material conditions. I don't think anything like that. So I think, and I think the, the normative questions are hard. That is the questions about what justice really requires. I probably also am maybe more suspicious of certain ways of theorizing about capitalism. So I don't think capitalism has an essence or anything. So I, I tend to kind of break it apart into the pieces and, and ask questions about the ways in which you could can configure questions about ownership, questions about how to structure labor, questions about how, how, how structure a tax scheme, so on and so, and so forth, and the different ways of configuring those things. And the question is, is well, what ways of configuring those features of the base structure of society would satisfy the principles of justice. And it might turn out that there are various forms of social life that would do that. So does that make sense? That's the way I, way I proceed. It's a, it's a kind of justice first rather than social theory first, but I'm happy to talk social theory and come from that tradition. So on some, I think, 
I think I'm not quite sure where the differences are. I mean, there are differences, but identify them is a little bit hard. We definitely agree that neither of us calls ourselves a Marxist anymore. Maybe for slightly different reasons. I think our starting places are somewhat different. I do take the normative questions that are absolutely essential and have to be on the table. But I also start with uh, sort of one of the basic questions I have is how do the people in any society who are most disadvantaged, most marginalized, what are their actual conditions they live in and how do, what are the structures that produce those conditions and how do we get there historically? So one of my critiques of capital, which is certainly I'm a member of a very large lesion, is, is a critique of Marx's account of primitive accumulation and the sort of idea there's a prehistory to, to capitalism. I'm much more sympathetic to the accounts of people like Owner Inche, of uh, Nikhil Singh, and many, many others who talk about ongoing accumulation that goes throughout capitalism and that associated with that is the need for capitalism to, or at least the historical pattern of people in power in capitalist societies dividing the world between those who are civilized, uncivilized, human, subhuman, first and second class citizens, which has great economic benefit, <laughs> both in terms of extraction of resources, dispossession of land, etc. So I don't have a normative answer to the question of whether capitalism has to be white supremacist and patriarchal. I just say that it has been historically from the beginning. And therefore, I am skeptical of the degree to which we can pull those apart empirically and politically. But perhaps we can, but it's going to take a massive amount of political change. The second thing I guess I would say about the normative question is, and this is where I stumble, and I think a lot of us stumble because these are hard questions, is if you have an extremely marginalized community that's been historically produced by sets of injustices, the question you ask in the book, what are ethical responses? I think we do have some disagreements about what we include, but part of what, the way I look at that is that whatever ethical responses we have, we don't want to fall into the, and this is your argument, the standard labeling of the behavior of people in marginalized communities being deviant. But I do think we have to pay attention to practices that are remaking the world. What are, what are our world-making practices? In other words, are we engaging in practices that help us move toward a world free of various forms of domination or not. So, Tommy, you said you kind of have started in some ways with the question of what justice requires rather than the kind of social theory that Marx might start with. And this book isn't, you're not trying to give us a full-fledged story about what justice requires. You argue it's an you know, exercise in non-ideal theory. But I wonder, you know, you, you give us sort of intimations of what you think justice might require in the world. And it's, it's very far from where we are, those moments that we suggest. So maybe another way of asking you this is if you were to give us a story about what that a kind of ideal theory of, of justice might require or what it would look like, you know, I guess one question would be like, how, how much further do we, would we need to go than, say, something like Rawls is a theory of justice, do you think? That would be one. And then is, do we have to go far enough that, you know, we have to imagine a kind of post-capitalist world? Or I guess another way to ask it from the social theory side would be, are the justices you, injustices you identify here 
embedded into the structure. So one thing, maybe one place to start is, is kind of the, the way Rawls might have conceptualized in the way I, I, I might in, in some ways a little bit differently. So, you know, so he's imagining, you know, principles that are kind of that any kind of liberal democratic order would have. So some of them are just basic, it's kind of basic liberties that many people accept who are, are not authoritarians or fascists. So kind of basic, kind of basic liberties are for equal citizenship in a democratic society. But then the, the, the controversial bits all are at, at the question of, of socioeconomic justice. So there are questions about what does equality of opportunity really mean, right? So he's got an interpretation of that, fair equality of opportunity, which is not just about non-discrimination and people being able to compete for jobs on, on, on fair terms, but also background conditions. So you want people to be coming from not their their family background, class background, not to be an impediment for them getting access to the most valuable social positions in life. That requires like quite a quite dramatic changes in the tax scheme, right? So you wouldn't have large intergenerational transfers of wealth and so on, right? It also would have a huge impact on how you structure an education system. And I, the more controversial bit of, of, of this theory is the so-called difference principle, which says that the only socioeconomic inequalities that are justifiable are the ones that work to the advantage of the, of the worst off. The worst off in this case, what that means is are the, the people whose, um, uh, he's imagining that there will be some markets. The people whose talents as such and the social structure as such that they're unlikely to get the most valuable, most highly rewarded positions in the society. So the only inequalities that you can justify are the ones that are going to make them as well off as possible. So, he, he, could, he sort of thought, well, it, you could have some inequality if, if it's a way of attracting talent to um, positions that are going to make everybody better off, if it's, it's going to uh, spur innovation, things like that, that are going to make everyone better off. But otherwise, you can't really justify the inequalities, only ones that look like that, right? So I have some sympathy with, with, with that. We could get into some details, things you might get into. I think he also thought that his principles of justice were not compatible with welfare state capitalism. He says it in a theory of justice. People don't seem to read that part, but he says it's not compatible with it. It's compatible with what he calls a property owning democracy, which would involve pretty expansive, uh, what we would think of welfare state, pretty expansive one, but also wide distribution of wealth, a lot more public ownership of material assets and so on. Um, or market socialism, where, public, where productive assets are held in common, but you still rely on markets as a coordinating measure and, and as a way to, to have an efficient use of resources. So, so the theory is, again, it's just as first, so it's like he's noncommittal. It's like, and he even thinks, well, maybe a different society should have different things, depending on the political history of it. So maybe in a society, in some societies, the political culture is such that something like market socialism seems like kind of off the table. And so a property owner democracy would be, the, would be the way to go. In other cases, you do the other. I would say our own situation, I think he didn't, he, he thought a lot about, uh, about fairness across generations. And in a lot of ways, I want to say, if I were going to argue for a strong anti-capitalist position, it would probably be on those grounds, probably be on the grounds that we don't really have a way of safeguarding the interests of future generations without reigning in capitalism dramatic. So I think there are people who work on that and been thinking about not just climate, but other kinds of resource depletion, all these kinds of things that are, um, and it seems like there might not be a regulatory regime that could rein it in enough 
to protect the interests of future generations. And, and that seems to me one strong reason to be quite skeptical of a heavy reliance on a capitalist practice to make sure people get the things that they need and want, um, though there might be many, many others. But I do find it in some ways hard, hard to say. I find it a hard, I don't know <laughs> whether there's a way of structuring private ownership of material assets for profit, the labor market, that relies on wages, that, that would satisfy all these various conditions. I find that a hard, a hard question, and especially against the background of our, our racial history. So I don't see myself as a person who, I'm not, as asserting, you know, we will, it's, it's a, I know a lot of people in, who, who do kind of left radical social theory have, have strong views about that you can never overcome racism and patriarchy um, uh, and economic injustice without abolishing capitalism. I'm, and they might be right, but I don't know <laughs> whether they are or not. Actually, I mean, I actually um, was hearing a paper by a young political theorist, Aaron Pineda, and I'm, I'm a little bit, I guess, skeptical about starting with Rawls as a starting point in the first place. And part of it is because her, she's been in the archives, Rawls' archives, more deeply than I ever would want to. And she's working on civil disobedience is her, is her central question. But one of the points that seems to be quite clear when Rawls is writing about civil disobedience in the aftermath of the civil rights movement is that he believes that the U.S. is a basically just society, not the society you describe whatsoever in dark ghettos, that with some aberrations that have been mostly corrected through the civil rights movement. That does not sound like the society that you're describing at all. So, so part of the question I have about Rawls is why are we starting with Rawls if he has a sort of fundamentally, I think we would agree, flawed view of understanding of the state, the importance of patriarchy, the importance of racism, the importance of the historical legacy of multiple systems of domination to produce what you describe as a fundamentally unjust society that produces, in your terminology, dark ghettos. Why are we starting with Rawls? I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't start with it. I mean, this, I think you can start with lots of different People, it's just like the way, as a way of framing the question. I think it's a useful way to frame, to frame the questions. I mean, I think whether he thought, I think this is in dispute, I think. Um, probably Brandon Terry, I think, is also in those archives and has a, a different inclusion than <laughs> about. Uh, but I don't think it matters whether, whether Rawls thought that, uh, say, uh, the United States satisfied his principles reasonably. He could just be wrong about that. That's a judgment about, that's a judgment everybody has to make about whether there's a society they're a part of, what society they think needs to be changed, whether it satisfies the principles of justice. It's a hard judgment to make. Um, I mean, he, he thought it was definitely unjust. The question is how unjust it is, right? So the, the, the theory of, the, the, the examples of civil disobedience that he gives in a theory of justice are a, on the assumption that we're dealing with a reasonably unjust rather than intolerably unjust society, and he tries to sketch a little bit of some pieces of non-ideal theory. He does not, what I was trying to do, take up the further question, what happens if you're dealing with a form of social life that drops below the amount of injustice that's actually tolerable? I should say by tolerable, all I mean is I take it that any society is going to have some injustices. The question is, like, you, is, is, the, is the social structure unjust enough that the question of its legitimacy is, is, is called into question, so grossly unjust that people's civic obligations are now 
weakened or perhaps void. Well, he was theorizing about civil disobedience in the, on the assumption that it's a reasonably just social order. What, what would you do? He doesn't try to answer the question, what, would, you know, what forms of political resistance would be permissible when you fall below that standard? And that's kind of what I was trying to, to get at. But I don't take his lead in, in terms of like his particular judgment about either the U.S. society then or now. It's more the, the way he's conceptualizing the problem of justice and the question of political ethics that I think is productive. So, starting off from Roth, but from your view of the unjustness of the society, at least with respect to dark ghettos, the type of reforms, transformations you call for are quite substantial, and Adam has said that before. What type of political movement do you envision that would, I mean, what would be the limits on the type of political movement that would be necessary to ensure the type of transformations you're calling for? I want to ask you that question. <laughs> you're not going to like my answer. <laughs> I'm a philosopher. <laughs> I, mean, I, do, I try to explicitly stay away from, I mean, it, one of the things that sometimes can happen is a way in which I do believe in disciplines, even though I try to be interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. Sometimes, sometimes what can happen is people start imagining that, you know, they have answers to, because they think they have answers to some questions, they get answers to all the questions. And I, I try to really avoid that. So I don't think I have an answer to that question. I mean, I think these questions of strategy, of political organization, the questions of what our political capacities are at a given moment, I find very difficult. I feel like other people who are much better positioned to pursue them. Mostly when I discuss those questions, I mostly do it in a negative way. So it's mostly that won't work <laughs> rather than this will work. So in many ways, I'm quite, quite open. I try to, in, in, in my, my first of We Who Are Dark, say uh, uh, some things about, you know, forms of political organizing, forms of political resistance that might have been productive in the past, that might have some limits in our moment. I try to do some of that. But that doesn't quite get to the point of answering the harder question, which is what kind of political capacities do we have that are available? What could we develop? What's, like, within view, something we could get to or see our way to that might actually bring about the kind of deep structural transformation that I think justice really requires. So turn it back to you. You tell me. <laughs> well, no, I just want to put another really hard question on the table that I think it's, it's the basic, I mean, a lot of historians, a lot of political theorists, uh, a lot of African-American studies scholars have all talked about the conversion of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King in the last years of their life, philosophically. And, but there is one, I think, massive difference, and I think it probably falls into the realms of Essex, and that is what is allowed to oppose oppression. Um, and uh, Malcolm's X's are, um, short version, the you know, little black book version was, by any means necessary. And that is a view that King would never have accepted. And that's part of the, I mean, if we're talking about a system that needs massive amounts of transformations, do you need a Malcolm X-like uh, movement or not? So it's really an ethical question. It's not about the actual politics. Or do we, are we governed by King and figure out we will suffer longer in order to remain ethical while building a new loving, just society? Terrific question. So I'm probably not with either of them on this question and probably closer to where I think Douglas and 
the voice are. So, so if you think, so I see Douglas at least kind of later Douglas. So Douglas as represented in life and times as raising questions about what, about political ethics of this sort and is coming around to, to John Brown's view uh, that basically slavery is a state of war. Um, and that, what's interesting about that kind of position is that many people in the black uh, political tradition at David Walker, you know, is like drawing on like Declaration of Independence, right? It's like a picture of things can become so unjust, a kind of despotism, a kind of absolute despotism that does justify, ethically speaking, um, quite radical means, including insurrection and uprising. So I, would, so I wouldn't want to say with King that always use nonviolent. I mean, it's the only thing you could justify, and I, I wouldn't want to say by any means necessary, but I think it partly depends on what you're up against. So if you, so a lot of people these days, I mean, I, I don't like the kind of constitution of like everything is slavery because everyone's against slavery. So if you say it's slavery, then <laughs> so I don't really like that. Um, I, I bring it up here only just to make a point, right, about like there can be situations that are so grossly unjust that even in, you know, what might be seen as a kind of weak, you know, Republican tradition of, of a Jefferson does permit, morally permit, um, quite drastic measures to kind of change things. Then you, then you just into questions about tactics uh, and strategy. Well, that's a harder... That, that is a question about what, what is our situation, right? And whether, so I think as you, if you're not in a situation of kind of absolute despotism, but there's still gross injustices, does that change? I think it does change, like what, what kinds of means are morally permissible? How much socioeconomic inequality must you tolerate? In case where this comes to a head, for me, and I still haven't figured out what I think about it, um, as the criminal justice system. Uh, because now we're really at the, we are talking about basic liberties, talking about due process, talking about really fundamental things. And there are questions about how much you can tolerate of that kind of repression and what kind of, what forms of, of, of action might be justified about it. So I find those hard, but I, so I, but I don't think, I wouldn't go Malcolm X or or somewhere where I think they're, uh, uh, Boys would have. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on racingcapitalism.com. That is racingcapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project. <laughs>